on a scale from one to Michael Cohen, how good of a lawyer are you? <laughs> uh, uh, mercy. If, if one day I could grow to the stature of Michael Cohen, uh, that, that would be a great success. Um, that's uh, well, that was supposed to be a joke. I, I think that went kind of flat there. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, de- define success. Is, is it notoriety or is it, you know, oh, it, doing it, things that are legal? If I could get to a point where I can retire without the DOJ serving a warrant on my office, I'd consider it to be a success. <laughs> oh, fair enough. <laughs> Those are my goals, at least. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Orientalist Express podcast. This is the show that brings together several young professionals from around the country to discuss topics related to the Middle East, American foreign policy, and international relations. The goal of this project is to make American foreign policy easier to understand for people who don't normally follow it too closely. I am Nicholas Hayen, the founder of the Orientalist Express blog and website. Joining us today in the virtual studio are a few of our usual contributors. We have Stephen Howard, under a foot of snow. Yeah, me too. Uh, Matthew Spencer Cosiel. Enjoying unseasonably nice weather in Scotland. And we also have a special guest and first-time contributor, Grant Miller. Grant, would you care to introduce yourself? Uh, yes, I am also enjoying unseasonably nice weather here in Salt Lake City, Utah. Uh, I'm a criminal defense attorney, so uh, hopefully some of my knowledge will be relevant here. I just want to Make a quick caveat that none of this is intended to be legal advice, so if uh, Donald Trump's listening in, he might want to consult a uh, different legal counsel. Wow, you're already pr- proving to be a great lawyer just by even saying that statement. So, I gotta have my disclaimers, man. <laughs> be sure to check out the official Orientalist Express website at orientalistexpress.com to read more about the team. So given that we have a lawyer on the show today... It seems fitting to discuss uh, lawyer-related things. Early last week, a huge development occurred in the Russia investigation. The president's personal lawyer and political problem fixer, Michael Cohen, was surprised with an FBI raid of his home and office. The raid, personally signed off on by Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein, was ostensibly carried out over an investigation into Cohen's personal business dealings and suspected payments to people like famed adult film star Stormy Daniels. Now, it's important to note that paying people for their silence isn't necessarily legal. And Grant, you can correct me if I'm wrong on that. Uh, well, did you say it's not necessarily legal or illegal? Illegal. You know, that, that's exactly uh, correct. I mean, you could, you could contract for just about anything so long it's not criminal. So if you want to contract somebody to, you know, pay somebody in exchange for them not saying anything... Uh, you're allowed to do that. I mean, the only thing you can't contract for is, you know, if I, I can't contract you to kill somebody, but that's that's kind of, besides that, you contract for just about anything. Great. But, of course, the problem is that some of those payments are alleged to have come from campaign funds, which is probably really illegal. Yes, response, very illegal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you. You're already uh, proving your, your wealth of knowledge on the subject. I, I hope so. Uh, in response... The president's uh, rage tweet that attorney-client privilege was dead. Um, This, of course, is being the process of keeping discussions with attorneys confidential from the prosecution. Otherwise, the prosecution would have a very unfair advantage. Uh, So was this uh, possibly a gross violation of the president's right to legal counsel? Or is it a sign that the president himself may be in serious legal jeopardy? And if so, can the president really be indicted for these alleged crimes? What are your thoughts on anything? Uh, so three part question. Um, I guess you don't I'll have uh, to answer it all at once. By the way, <laughs> no, 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 no. Fair enough. Well, we'll, we'll start at the top here about um, uh, attorney client privilege, and uh, you know, I, I just kind of want to uh, mention real quick the reason why we have attorney client privilege. Uh, when you have a client, it really helps if they're able to speak candidly with you. Uh, particularly in my field, I'm a criminal defense attorney. I, I don't want to be sort of sucker punched or surprised by the prosecution with uh, something I don't know about. And it helps if uh, my clients are forthright with me. So I know what to anticipate in the case I can prepare for it. 
Um, furthermore, you have Fifth Amendment rights against self-incrimination. And when you tell your attorney something uh, and someone gets that information out of an attorney, it, it kind of corrupts that uh, right against self-incrimination. And so that's, uh, there's multiple reasons why we have attorney-client privilege. Um, but whether or not attorney-client privilege applies to this specific case, um, I think it's, it's, it's fair to say it's an issue. I think it's valid for the president to, to bring the challenge, um, as he has recently with higher courts saying that uh, his privilege has been violated with his attorney. But whether or not it even applied in the first place, uh, I don't know. And that's something I think we should talk about real quick. And even if it does apply, there's, there's an exception uh, to the rule that might also apply in this situation. So um, kind of wanted to give you a brief roadmap there. I also want to allow uh, uh, any chance for you guys to chime in, too, if you have any questions. I just don't want to go on a, some sort of rant here uh, <laughs> unilaterally. But um, uh, no, th there's a question here about whether or not there was even attorney-client privilege to begin with. Keep in mind, attorney-client privilege only applies to... Um, the scope of a specific matter, you know, say that uh, Nick hired me to be his attorney over a, over a speeding ticket, for example. Um, that attorney-client privilege is only covered for that speeding ticket. If, uh, if someone was asking me questions about something I knew about Nick's other uh, uh, legal issues, perhaps a breach of contract with his landlord, uh, that's not covered because that wasn't within the scope of our privilege. That wasn't the scope of my representation to him. So here we have the, our first issue. Um, there's Can this... I ask you a question real yeah, quick on this? Uh, absolutely. So one of the things that I've been hearing is that necessarily between – and I, I'm sure that Michael Cohen and Donald Trump actually did have some um, lawyerly conversation and some uh, conversation that would be privileged under attorney-client uh, – matter but and it's exactly what you're getting to right now uh, there's obviously a lot of stuff which isn't privileged under a client a client uh i'm sorry under client attorney privilege because i mean just because you're an attorney doesn't mean you get a client attorney privilege right uh, in the search of michael cohen's office though the people are necessarily or the people that search the office the fbi is necessarily going to find both privileged and non-privileged communication how will they kind of how do you think they will sort through both of those to or does it compromise everything i know that's a that's a big point of contention with a lot of um i don't want to specify a political party but with with one section of the country no that's an excellent question um you know if, if the fbi goes through and, and finds a whole bunch of privileged information uh, the remedy for that is it's just not admissible in the court. And so if, uh, you know, Trump or, or his lawyer gets indicted for something, um, then they just don't get to use that evidence. Um, that's, that's one way to sort of remedy um, the, the violation of, of, of privilege. Um, so, you know, I mean, still the FBI and the DOJ would be tipped off to something going on there, but they would have to uh, uh, get that evidence some other way and, and, and kind of treat the situation like they never discovered it in the first place. So... Um, sort of a weird fiction there, but that's, that's kind of the remedy. And a lot of times you corrupt any chance to ever use that evidence if you obtain it improperly to begin with. Uh, so, so keep that in mind. Um, but I want to hop back over to scope of, uh, of attorney-client privilege and whether or not there's even privilege here. Because the documents they're looking at, uh, regard, uh, Michael Cohen using, uh, uh, uh funds potentially improperly. Uh, to pay for the silence of uh, uh, Miss Stormy Daniels. And Trump says that he didn't even know about it uh, when interviewed by the press. So given that Trump didn't even know what his attorney was doing, Trump might not even be a, a, a party to this action. He might not even had uh, a representation as Mr. Cohen might have been acting for his own self-interest, in which case there's absolutely no attorney-client privilege to begin with. That's scenario one. Um, whether or not you guys buy uh, that, uh, I don't know, uh, because uh, Trump says that he didn't know what Mr. Cohen was doing. Um, I find it very disconcerting that uh, he has a lawyer that's acting on his own uh, sort of free agency on the behalf of the best interests of the clients. Very rare. I, I don't. Uh, I think there's more to the story than what Trump is saying to the media here. Um, so what if? Yes. Sorry, I was wondering, do you come across a lot of, and I know Michael Cohen's been referred to as like a fixer, do you come across in your profession a lot of uh, lawyers who will take actions for their clients without the client's knowledge? I mean, is that a, is that a thing even? Well, 
not going so far as to literally entering con entering into contracts without uh, uh, the knowledge of a client. I mean, whether or not that, that kind of contract's even valid is another sort of question. It depends on whether or not the contract was between. Well, it was between Donald Trump and and, and Stormy Daniels, right? Like like a contract. Yeah, I think so. And then he didn't sign it, so she didn't feel uh, like it applied to her. And I, I, I'm not going to lie. I don't really know the uh, nuances of this, which is why I only have questions. I don't really have any well, sure statements not. or answers. I, I never I never read the contract myself. But, yeah, I, 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 if I remember correctly, Donald Trump's name's on the contract. So there's a question of whether or not you even have a contract. To have a contract, you have to have both parties. It's called a meeting of the minds, you know, a mutual assent to an agreement that both parties are just like, yes, this is what we want. Now, if there's one party completely absent um, that, that never knew of a, of a contract at all, let alone the terms and conditions, I don't even think you have a valid contract. Um, but that's that's another story. Uh, that's, a, that's a sort of another uh, legal analysis. Um, but uh, getting back to what you're saying, I mean, certainly I do a lot of things within the court system on cases for my clients that they don't necessarily know about, but that's because I, you know, they accomplish the goals in a case and I, I do what I can to... Sure. To accomplish it. Kind of like a doctor doesn't need to explain everything that they're doing. You just say, you know, fix my arm, they fix your arm. Uh, I'm an attorney, you know, they say, you know, I've been charged with a crime, help me, and I do my best to help them. Or at least provide the, the, the best, uh, zealous sort of, uh, advocate, uh, um, or, or be as zealous, as best of a zealous advocate as I can. Um, and so that's my job. They don't necessarily know everything that I'm doing, but I certainly wouldn't go and create a new case on their behalf, or sue someone on their behalf, or create a contract on their behalf, Without their knowledge, I mean that's a that's a brazen sure. violation of uh, ethical duties of an attorney. I think you'd be disbarred for that kind of stuff. Ooh, should should Michael uh, should Michael Flynn? No, sorry, should Michael Cohen be disbarred? Do you think? It, well, it depends. Uh, you know, if if the president is correct in saying like you know he he didn't he didn't know about this contract, potentially he could be disciplined by the bar. Yes. Oh boy. Um, and it goes one step further if. Uh, um, you know, taking this uh, attorney-client uh, uh, privilege conversation to the next step, you know, like let's say that uh, Trump did have knowledge of this contract and, uh, and and told his lawyer to proceed with it and truly was a party without any fishy stuff going on, then uh, then you do have attorney-client privilege. And, uh, and that kind of stuff is protected, but there's a special exception. And the special exception is this. With uh, attorney-client privilege, information between your uh, your, your client's uh, as an attorney, isn't privileged if it's used to further like a future crime. Attorney-client privilege is um, is, is like retrospective. It only covers things that happened in the past, but doesn't cover uh, things that happen in the future. And as an attorney, people can't hire me to further a crime. You know, people can't say, "Grant, you're a criminal defense attorney. Uh, I want what's the best way to uh, traffic uh, narcotics across state lines without getting caught?" Uh, no, that's that's unethical. I cannot. <laughs> I cannot wait, better wait, call solid as a as, ah, a, as a word. I was just gonna say that. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to... So it's not like on TV. Uh, uh, believe it or not, Nick. Um, sometimes things are slightly, slightly different. Uh, in in that's real a, life, um, that's a lie. I'm not gonna believe you. I'm sorry. That's a, no. I mean, I've met my share of attorneys <laughs> that are very better call Saul esque, uh, but do so within. The umbrella of what they're allowed to do. Uh, certainly, none take a cut from uh, meth lords, or at least they shouldn't. If if they did, they would be uh, certainly in big trouble. <laughs> but that's why a client doesn't. I mean, hopefully, a client isn't stupid. They just say, "What if I will have?" So just use the future perfect. Even just use the past tense in a hypothetical. You know, what if I were to tell you that? What if I were to tell you a month from now that two weeks ago I trafficked drugs? I, I mean, people are allowed to know their rights. Uh, you know, I, every once in a while, I do get someone shady coming out of the woodwork saying, you know, like asking for weird stuff. And like, you know, first thing I tell you is you, you're not, you can't commit crimes. Don't commit crimes. Laws there for a reason. And given that, I mean, like, you know, everyone should know their constitutional rights that, you know, you got the Fifth Amendment right to remain silent. You have a right to an attorney. You have the right to due process, but that's just about it. I mean, like, the protections are constitutional. They're not there to enable you to commit crimes. They're, they're there to prevent tyranny. Um, so it's not like, you know, go contact a lawyer to, you know, figure out how to run your drug empire. Like, no, you're, you're not going to have help here. But, you know, there's a different question with Michael Cohen, uh, because, uh, if Michael Cohen used campaign finance uh, funds 
to pay off Stormy Daniels. Um, that that's a that's a gross misuse of uh, of campaign funds. Uh, and and uh, and the way that you would sort of disguise it would would constitute fraud. And uh, and that's probably what this investigation is kind of resting on moving forward. Granted, we don't know exactly um, what the theory of uh, of Mr. Mueller's case is. Uh, in, in, in what's going to come to light at the very end of the day and what exactly they were looking for here. But it was likely something along these lines. Um, and keep in mind, it's not like these are Wild West sheriffs that are just like, you know, kick down doors and start rummaging through things. Um, uh, this was a proper uh, warrant obtained by the DOJ. They have protocols they need to follow internally um, at the uh, U.S. Attorney's Office and throughout the DOJ. And keep in mind, a federal magistrate, which is an entirely different branch of government, and the judiciary signed off on that warrant. Uh, so you have two different branches of government uh, here doing everything, it, it seems to be properly, by the book. Uh, if, uh, if there's an issue here about attorney-client privilege, it's likely it may have come up already um, within the DOJ or, or within the judiciary before the warrant was even served. Now, as a criminal defense attorney, I know this is often not the case, but uh, there are safeguards here that, that already indicate that if there was an issue, uh, they've, they've got some justification for overcoming that issue. I'm willing to bet that um, the, uh, the, the future fraud exception to attorney-client privilege would be that, that smoking gun in this case. So here's the million dollar question for you then. I know you said that this is really pointing probably to a uh, breach in the law by Michael Cohen. Does this at all implicate Trump in a crime? I know that's going to be the thing that everyone's looking at. If Michael Cohen goes to jail, I think some people will go, oh, hooray, but it's it's not going to be the uh, kind of exactly what everyone else is saying. Oh, this is the starting of... Trump's uh, downfall because he's going to be implicated with this crime as well, et cetera, et cetera. Does Trump have any legal liability here? That's a great question. And uh, I'm going to have to thank my girlfriend who just popped in and wrote me a note here uh, that, that really kind of hits the, uh, the the nail on the head in that lawyers have apparent authority on, on, on behalf of their their clients. I mean, they're, they're acting as a client's agent. You know, there, there's, there's, there's liability um, that kind of goes both way when you're when you're both ways when your agent uh, does something on your behalf. Uh, when you have a lawyer that that's doing something for you, it's assumed that uh, um, you're kind of acting in concert, almost in unison, like the same person with your lawyer. Uh, so at the end of the day, it really kind of depends. Was this Trump telling his lawyer to do these things? Um, was the lawyer just just acting so? outside of the will of Trump that there's no longer an apparent authority that he was acting on behalf of Trump. He was truly acting by himself. I think that's, that's sort of like the crux of whether or not you could trace it back to Trump. But if Trump was uh, really trying to use uh, Michael Cohen as a sort of uh, Saul Goodman in sense, in a sense, uh, then yes, uh, there, there would be, um, uh, I guess, some hot water for, for Trump down the road. How could you even, would that, would that be easy to prove? I mean, I, I, again, I have no idea about anything in regarding uh, civil law, and would it be easy to prove that uh, Trump was basically using Michael Cohen as a fixer? Even uh, it, it, it does there basically have to be hard evidence that yes, there was a tape in the White House, and because they were taping each other, or whatever, and he said yes, go fix this situation. I mean, geez, I mean, something like that would be just, just so crazy. You probably even have a congressional hearing about it. But generally speaking, I mean, this, this kind of stuff would be governed by criminal law. And a prosecutor would have to prove their case to a jury beyond a reasonable doubt. So the burden's actually pretty high. Um, it, it can't be, uh, you know, in a civil case, it could be just, uh, like a 51 to 49%, you know, more likely than not you could win your case in front of a jury. Criminal is, uh, it's a high burden. Uh, beyond a reasonable doubt is the highest burden that we have in our system. Uh, so they would need substantial evidence, um, to convict either Michael Cohen or, or, or the president of wrongdoing if, uh, if they're charged with a crime, uh, in, in this, in this instance. Which I suppose is why what they seized was essentially the communications themselves and why those would no longer be privileged is because they could be in, indicative of, of, an attempt to create and cover up a crime. Is that correct? Or 
Yeah, I, I for the most part, I mean, that's that's why they're they're going after uh, uh, this kind of evidence. I mean, whether or not that kind of stuff is admissible is a different question. I mean, you always run into like hearsay issues, um, even when you have written or recorded uh, 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 statements. But uh, that said, uh, they know what they're doing and they know what they're looking for here. And they obtained it through search warrants, so it looks like they're uh, they're dotting their eyes and crossing their t's here. So they 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 it looks like they're they're look they might be on to something hot, and uh, we just don't know what it is yet. But um, you know, it's 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 kind of a big deal when the DOJ jumps into law office of the lawyer of the president of the United States. Uh, I mean, that's. Uh, that's rather disconcerting, I think, uh, without getting yeah, too uh, political about it. Uh, un- unless you believe that the entire, you know, that the deep state is real and literally everyone is against him, they probably did their due diligence in following up in a legal well, manner on all this. For 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 goodness sakes, I mean, the the, attorney, the 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 district attorney for the district, the Southern District of New York, was a Trump appointee. So deep state. <laughs> I, I, so deep. I, yeah, I is <laughs> yeah, it would have to be. That's one heck of a conspiracy when uh, when your own your own appointees are part of the conspiracy against you. I uh, I Deep state. see <laughs> see how easy that is, man. It's, <laughs> it's uh, I mean that, that's radical, but I mean sure he can tweet about it all he wants. We'll, we'll see what happens. So I guess um, what, one of the other things I wanted to circle back with on that, um, you know, are these communications privileged? Is um, the idea of essentially a clean team correct? So. Um, the FBI agents who raided these offices and um, Michael Cohen's house, theoretically, you know, they're going to gather everything up and then they're going to send that information to a, basically an independent third party uh, known as a clean team, or I guess some people call it a taint team, but I don't like to use that word. It's kind of gross. Um, <laughs> but essentially, you know, it's it's that third party team that pours through everything and says, yes, this is privileged, so we're not going to give it to either the special counsel or to... Um, the Southern District of New York, who is actually conducting the case, and then they'll look at other things and say, this is not privileged, so we will send it along. And so that kind of helps, you know, designate that. Yeah, sure. I mean, it, it ensures that they're, they're going through an extra layer of, uh, of caution uh, to, to play by the book, um, which uh, always kind of at least gives me a little bit of comfort uh, with the federal government. I mean, the uh, the GOJ is, is fierce. I mean, they've got a lot of power. I mean, uh, and I guess in, in cases like this, it's good when there's, there's questions about uh, um, potential crimes committed by the President of the United States. You want a, a, a powerful sort of uh, a law enforcement branch. But on the flip side, uh, you know, it's uh, with great power comes great responsibility. It's important that they always just sort of keep that in check. Um, but, yeah, if, if they intend on doing that, they'll certainly help. Uh, to to keep everything straight, uh, so that way they don't violate any any potential uh, uh, issues uh, with the attorney-client privilege. But like I said, even if it gets push comes to shove, um, evidence obtained improperly uh, just can't be used in a, in a court of law. That would be excluded. So a lot of these things, you know, even if some of this uh, information is privileged and could be used in a court of law, um, or even if they didn't necessarily violate the exact. Uh, campaign finance laws, none of it could be used in, in um, a court of law necessarily in some instances, but all of it could be used in impeachment proceedings, couldn't it? Because, I mean, that's not necessarily a strictly legal process. It's far more of a political process. Yeah, I think you're correct. Uh, I, I don't I don't think the rules of evidence apply to impeachment proceedings. I think everything's just fair game. Um, I mean, I think you could read something on... Uh, on uh, Fox and Friends, or see something on Fox and Friends, and you use it in an impeachment proceeding. I think you use a cereal box in an impeachment proceeding. I really think that uh, anything goes. Uh, so yeah, uh, if if the DOJ sort of drops the ball and oops, you know, we leaked these very incriminating documents. Uh, you know, what happens then? Um, I mean, aside from that being a you know a, an unprofessional and ethical breach of uh, of the duties of of the DOJ, I mean, if it happens, it happens. And if it's out there, I mean, you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. So, I mean, if, if there was an impeachment proceeding, uh, would something like this kind of come out and, and would they use it? Potentially. Uh, but, um, I mean, that's, uh, that's a lot of speculation down the road. Um, I mean, whether or not this even results in, um, you know, criminal action against Michael Cohen, uh, you know, is, is, is yet still 
remains to be seen. You know, uh, whether or not this ultimately results in impeachment, I think is uh, is quite a different story. That uh, that we'd really have to get more information and wait to to see whether or not that's where Congress would want to go with it. Yeah, I suppose that would be putting the cart before the horse, so to speak. One question that I just remembered, um, and this could again be kind of getting out in front of things, but could if this keeps on going, keeps progressing, could a lawyer be forced to testify against his own client? Uh, I mean, that that depends uh, on whether or not attorney-client privilege applies. Um, you know, it kind of goes back to the, uh, the the very first issue that we talked about, like, was there even attorney-client privilege here? Did Donald Trump know about it? Um, like, like I said, it really depends on the circumstances. Usually, no, uh, if it's within... If it's within a case in which a, a, a attorney's representing client, for example, you know, I can't be called to testify against one of my own clients based on a conversation I had with my own client. But if I was furthering the criminal actions of one of my clients, then yes, I, I could be called to testify um, uh, against my client because there's a, there's no attorney-client privilege there because it falls under one of those exceptions. Um, so, uh, like I said, the answer is it depends uh, but, uh, you know, unlikely, but, but I guess possible. So if, um, maybe like a real world scenario here, if, uh, you know, I come into your office and I'm like, you know, I need representation for a speeding ticket, blah, blah, you know, we go through that whole process. And at some point I'm like, oh, and by the way, you know, I just killed a man, you know, put a gun against his head, pulled the trigger <laughs> and I was dead, dead sort of thing. Um, would that also like, if, if you're not representing me in that, Am I definitely screwed then? Well, no, no. I mean, that you're 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 talking to a lawyer. You're confiding with them, um, believing that everything's uh, held in confidence. And uh, if yeah, if, if you're talking to me about speeding ticket, and you say, by the way, I killed a guy. Um, that that's also I'd say that's privileged information. Now, it's a little bit different if you if you tweak that scenario a little bit and you say, I have a speeding ticket. By the way, tonight I have plans to go kill somebody. Um, that's a, that's a, that, that's not covered. Uh, I would, uh, it would actually be, uh, up to my discretion of whether or not I would want to, uh, reach out to the authorities and, uh, and report that. So basically if you are a criminal defense attorney, you know, you have that wide scope. Uh, somebody can confess to a whole array of, or a whole array of crimes and that's, that's privilege. Are there, if you're a different type of attorney, are there certain crimes someone could admit to that wouldn't be privileged? Uh, not, not necessarily. I mean, uh, if you're a lawyer, you're a lawyer. I mean, I, I practice like criminal law, but I'm, I'm licensed to practice any kind of law I want. It's just that, uh, you know, it's a, I have an area of, of expertise that I, I practice in. Um, certainly, if you're a contract lawyer or you're a family law lawyer and someone comes to you with like these... Uh, uh, these rather egregious confessions, uh, uh, no, that's, that's privileged, uh, unless it's waived, you know, by, uh, by your client. Um, for example, if your client goes and tells somebody else, um, then, uh, then that's, that, that, that's, that's broken. And so I guess by extension, if say, cause, uh, Mueller's investigation sort of has a reputation for, um, flipping certain people. If in some instance, Cohen were to start cooperating with that investigation, then by extension, anything that would be considered privileged, he would not need to give up, but anything else he could. Am I kind of reading that right? Uh, it depends on whether or not it's been waived. Um, and uh, it depends on whether or not it's technically uh, privileged information. So, uh, like, like I said, it really depends. Because uh, the hard thing is that we don't know exactly uh what sort of legal paradigm the DOJ is operating on here when they when they raided the office? Um, but if if Michael Cohen's called to testify, it depends on whether or not you know Trump already breached that privilege by tweeting about it. Uh, it depends on whether or not the um, the privilege actually applies in the first place, and it also depends on whether or not there's an exception to that privilege if it does apply. So everything hinges on Trump's Twitter account. <laughs> perhaps, perhaps. God help us. <laughs> So that is interesting. Now that we're talking about the investigation, you do defense law or criminal defense law. Uh, that means you also know a wee bit about what is or isn't legitimate on the investigation side of things, perhaps. Would you be interested in talking a bit about that, Grant? Uh, sure. Um, 
once again, it like it really depends. But uh, yeah, if when when the government doesn't play by the book, um, the the rules are pretty steep against the government, and for good reason. You don't want uh, the government to brazenly ignore um, you know Fourth Amendment rights to privacy and uh, and the rules of search and seizure. Uh, you don't want the government to ignore rules that require you getting a warrant based on uh, on probable cause. Uh, so if the government went about this improperly, like let's say they uh, and a warrant was issued here uh, without probable cause, if 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 Robert Mueller said like, hey, let's just go raid the office, and perhaps there'll be something that we could retroactively say, hey, we got found a smoking gun, now it's justified. Uh, no, you could suppress that evidence absolutely. Um, you would you would be able to go to a, a judge and say this is uh, this was obtained improperly by the government and therefore they should have never seen it and therefore it shouldn't be used at trial and they would be excluded from using that kind of evidence if if the warrant was bad so uh, certainly yeah uh, if uh, if the DOJ went about any of this improperly then um, then there's an upshot and you get the case dismissed on those grounds potentially. Sticking with our theme of lawyerly things, late last week the president launched another airstrike on Syria in response to recent reports of chemical weapons attacks. These attacks were similar to the ones that happened last year around this time, but this time they involved the joint participation of forces from England and France. The big question here is the authorization of the president to carry out these sorts of military interventions. The AUMF, known as the Authorization for Use of Military Force, against global terrorism doesn't really seem to apply here, since the target is another sovereign nation. When confronted with this exact same scenario, President Obama attempted to get authorization from Congress to launch these strikes, but he was denied this. Trump, on the other hand, didn't attempt to seek such authorization. So was the president justified in his attacks, or um, should the president have the authority to launch these sorts of strikes, or should Congress be responsible? I was just going to say, I understand what you're saying about Obama has become a point of contentious amongst some of us here at the Orientalist Express. I believe it was a bit of a debate about, wasn't me that was making this argument. It was probably me. That you you don't think that he was muzzled by Congress. No, I think that he used Congress as a, uh, basically as a screen so he didn't have to do anything. I'd agree with that. Well, and, I'm, and, I, yeah, and I'm not necessarily even arguing that that was or was not the case. I mean that that could very likely be possible. But he at least he at least attempted to is is the distinction I'm trying to make. Uh, so I mean there, there's some good questions here about whether or not Trump really has you know the legal authority or you know and that, which is kind of separate from justifying it. But the two kind of have a nexus here to have the authority kind of need to justify it. But uh, at the end of the day, there's uh, there's some certain laws that kind of jump in that enable the president to act in. Uh, uh, national security interests, uh, even if they don't have congressional approval, um, just inherent in being the uh, the commander in chief. I mean, the war po war powers resolution. I can't remember nineteen whatever. I apologize. I can't uh, <laughs> pin site exact seventy three. Uh, seventy three. Thank you. You got it. Um, I mean, it allows the president to uh, relocate and use military force without congressional approval, but uh, puts a cap on it. So you know. He has to notify Congress if he's doing these sorts of things, but Congress doesn't have to vote on it. It's just that there's a military presence in a foreign country long, lasting longer than three months, you know, 90 days. Um, then Congress has to act. Um, now, what Obama did was very curious because I mean, there's about three different issues here. I mean, the first one is, can the president technically do this stuff? I mean, the answer is technically no. Um, you know, you have to look at, for example, Article 51 of the UN Charter, uh, which sort of lays the uh, framework of when you can attack another country. And you can only attack another country when there's an imminent threat. Uh, you, you, you can't do it out of retaliation. And what we're looking at here in Syria is a retaliatory strike for using chemical weapons. Um, so based on that alone, I mean, you know, can the president use it? Technically, no. Uh, but, uh, has anyone really been terribly concerned about it? The answer is also no. I mean, look at Obama. Obama was faced with the same issue when he announced that he was going to strike Syria. 
Um, but he wanted to play things really by the book, and he asked for congressional approval, even though he technically didn't have to if it was well within American security interests to strike Syria. Once again, it's a separate question. Whether or not there's a proper nexus there, uh, that's up to the White House to justify. Um, the Supreme Court, you know, once said, and I can't remember what case, whenever the president acts with uh, the permission of Congress, they're really acting with full zenith of, of their powers on the behalf of the people of the United States. And I think Obama wanted to sort of use that just in case things went awry. He could, he could say he had congressional approval. He was acting with the full zenith of powers afforded to the president. And furthermore, it, it may very well, as we were discussing earlier, uh, been uh, sort of like an eject button that he had talked himself into a corner, realized he didn't want to follow through with the strikes and wanted an out and figured that Congress wouldn't uh, wouldn't give it to him. So that might be another theory. But, um, I mean, should he be acting with the permission of Congress? Yeah, he should. Does he have to? No, he doesn't have to. Um, now, declaring war is a different story. Only Congress can do that. But if you're talking about a, a military strike in Syria, per se, or, you know, say perhaps numerous extrajudicial drone bombings throughout Yemen and Somalia and various other countries like we saw under Obama, then, uh, then no congressional approval not per se needed to pursue these kind of military actions. Well, and there's another, our, there's another, I guess, authorization method in the United States for these types of, types of strikes as well. And that's under Article 2 of the U.S. Constitution, which authorizes the president to use force and self-defense. Yes. And that self-defense can be read to mean the national interest. And is it in the national interest of the United States to strike in Syria against uh, chemical weapons usage? You can very easily argue that, yes, that is in the national interest. And at that point, it becomes a political question. But does it, because Congress has not engaged with that issue and has not defined the political question, it means that the president has broad authority on that issue, on that subject, to decide what he may and to say what he believes the national interest actually encompasses. And so he's this. This just might be my opinion, but I think that the president is well within his rights in in terms of U.S. law that. He, the strike is legal in terms of U.S. law. In terms of international law, Grant, you are right that it's uh, – I, I don't know. It's it's hard to define an in international law because, I mean, international law is basically consensus, right? You say international law of the seas, and it's just basically what people have agreed to do on the seas. There's no enforcement method. There's no yes. teeth to it. Yes. And it's what you, what you agree to do and what you will self-regulate to do. Right. And so – Whatever the – like exactly when you said the United States, United Kingdom, and France uh, did kind of flaunt the uh, UN charter in that sense. But it's – it's we, we've seen over – since the UN was created, all states will prioritize the national interest over uh, the UN charter. And that's, that's, that is a flaw of the UN is that the UN does not have any teeth. It does not have any enforcement methods. Therefore, it is – as many people will say, just a big debating society. I think it's a necessary debating society, but that is kind of what it is. No, um, absolutely. You hit the nail on the head, Stephen. Um, and for better or for worse, yeah, the, the UN is limited in what they can do as far as uh, enforcement of resolutions. Um, but, uh, no, I, I like the way you put it. I mean, whenever you have a treaty, uh, you know, each sovereign is uh, required to sort of self-impose and regulate uh, and enforce mm -hmm. that, uh, that, that side of the treaty. And so when one side just decides that uh, they want to breach the treaty, um, there's no overriding, you know, universal military force that's going to, you know, make one side do X, Y, or Z. Um, so, uh, yeah, you know, under Article 51, everyone should be following it. But uh, uh, that said, just about every country in the UN has had a slightly different interpretation of what Article 51 actually means. Mm -hmm. But going back to... Um... The president's authorization isn't that a really, you know, a really low bar to cross if he has the authority if he just deems it in the national interest. And, I mean, because that's essentially you're allowing one person to say, "Well, I think today this is in the national interest," whereas tomorrow maybe something else is in the national interest, and so that alone gives him the authority to launch a strike. I mean, I, I agree in some in some respects that makes sense. But is shouldn't there be maybe a couple other hurdles to jump through a little bit more um, 
know, a little bit more accountability rather than just, well, he said it was in the interest, so it's proof. It's like hegemon privilege right there, you know, you could you could defend yourself against a threat to your interests as opposed to a threat to your national security. And isn't that lovely? I mean, if you're powerful enough, I mean, even Russia gets to say that they could defend themselves against threats to their interests. In... Well, but we're, we're trying to avoid that sort of uh, justification of, you know, essentially might makes right. Isn't the entire point of all of this that that we hold ourselves to a higher legal standard than just, well, we're the strongest and we can do it, so we will, and, and it's right. Well, the problem is, is that the national interest has to be broadly defined so that each president can pursue it and they don't have to be uh, beholden to any specific uh, act of Congress. And this this becomes a bipartisan issue. This is by far a bipartisan issue and is actually why, as uh, Matt alluded to earlier, why I believe that uh, President Obama used the uh, congressional authorization for strikes on Syria as kind of a duck and cover sort of thing. All presidents since the, basically since uh, Vietnam, uh, with the War Powers Resolution Act, have int- have taken this Article Two Constitution interpretation and broadly defined their powers to you to pursue the national interest in any way they see fit, and. The Congress has always been okay with that. Republican, Democratic, they have always been okay with that. And for a large extent, it is hard to say, well, go ahead and define exactly what the national interest is supposed to be. Well, if you define exactly what the national interest is supposed to be, you run into a Dean Akiston sort of problem, and you define uh, the United States' critical interests in Asia as X, Y, and Z, but you forget to include South Korea, and suddenly South Korea is being invaded. We like that kind of, um, uh, what is it, fungibility, the blurriness of where our national interest begins and ends, because it provides a kind of a deterrent to what people will do if people know that our national interest extends directly up to the borders of um germany that's that's where it ends is right there well then they're going to take any action they want up unto the border of germany if we say that our national interest involves central europe that's it's going to be very much more hard to define where the United States is going to strike, where it's going to move. And you can debate the pros and cons of that, but it, it gives everyone a lot more in the United States, a lot more unilateral authority to, I guess, move on issues and be much more responsive to issues without having to uh, completely reframe the national security. On that note, it's interesting you bring that up because I think about how, the U.S. is willing to use force to defend its uh, interests. And it just reminds me of our last podcast about um, cybersecurity and other international cyber issues and how technically cyber attack is, is, is more of a threat to American security than American interests since it often involves, uh, you know, a direct attack against, you know, U.S. infrastructure or, or individuals who are citizens on U.S. soil, for example. And yet, you know, our responses tend to be much more measured when it's in the realm of cyber issues. Um, I think that that's why it's probably important to drill down the point that um, we we meet like with like. And that's why, um, obviously, America's interests are global, you know, that there, there there's no there's no place where U.S. interests end and anybody else's interests begin because we are, you know, we're number one. And. That's why it's important to keep in mind, you know, we use these other pretenses beyond just, you know, threat to interests, such as right to protect, and that we meet force with force, as opposed to just saying, oh, you know, this this economic behavior is a threat to our interests, so let's use military force. But we don't do that. We use military force to protect our interests if somebody else was using military force first. At least that's our justification for using force. Yeah, and I certainly don't dispute you know the the fungibility of the um, of using the national interest as a means with which to justify these sorts of things. I guess um, I guess we sort of took it for granted, didn't we? That um, that we trusted the person who was using that that argument of the national security. In previous administrations, it was always, 
while we might not necessarily agree with exactly what they're doing, um, you know, we trust maybe that they have some... <laughs> they're not absolute morons. <sighs> Essentially, as much as I hate to put it that way. Um, but but isn't there, I mean, you know, we, we bring up the issue of, well, Article 2, uh, you know, and that Congress needs to approve a declaration of war. Declarations of war don't happen anymore. I mean, even when the United States invaded Iraq, and we explicitly took down the government and disbanded the military, we didn't declare war to do that. And that's exactly what you would, I mean, in any other circumstance, that would be considered, you would have to declare war in order to do that, because it looked and felt and acted just like every other conventional war at the time. Unfortunately, now, we don't have conventional warfare. We have we have cyber warfare, we have idea warfare, and so we can't just declare war on cyber terrorism. That just doesn't make sense. Uh, we declared war on terrorism, though, using the AUMF. I mean, however flawed that might be, we okay, basically well, did. <laughs> we basically did a Michael Scott and said, I declare war. I mean, it wasn't, uh, you know, <laughs> come on, well, that's exactly what it was. We didn't. There weren't articles in Congress that were passed of a declaration of war. It was, we declare war on you. Great. Now what? Yeah, I don't know. It's 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 really... Uh, the uh, Basically, what I want to say is that it is a very good debate that should be had as to what the national interest is of the United States, what we should be looking at in terms of what should be the legality of strikes against other countries, attacks against other countries, against other militant, uh, non-governmental militant organizations, things like that. But for now, and this is the this is the big point that I want to try to get across for everyone is that uh, legally, domestically, these attacks were definitely legal. Internationally, uh, in terms of the UN Charter, not so much. But as I said. Those are kind of wish-washy one way or another anyways. But everyone that is in the United States right now on either side of the aisle claiming this is illegal, it is it is by far not illegal. Yeah, I certainly don't claim that it's illegal. And I mean, as I was telling you earlier, honestly, if I was in that position, I, I would have had to authorize it anyway oh, yeah. as well, just because, or I guess we, we shouldn't necessarily try to impact the outcome of that conflict because, you know, it is not our war. It is someone else's war. And we can at least try to try to um, influence the tactics of that war that we that, you know, yeah, people are going to be able to indiscriminately kill hundreds of thousands with conventional means. But if you use chemical weapons, you just can't do that. And maybe that's all that we can do. And so do we need an authorization for the use of military force stating something to that effect? Write your congressman. I mean, uh, there's a, I think there's a lot of uh, good points that you guys are bringing up. Uh, policy concerns of uh, just how broad the military pro uh, powers are that are afforded to the chief executive. Um, but, uh, I mean, the thing is, if you give the chief executive a certain amount of powers, they're going to push that. And that's how it got to a point that uh, you're allowed to enforce military action just to protect your interests. And, you know, like, and that's that's all it really kind of takes. Um, certainly, if Congress wants that power back to act as that check, uh, to fully require congressional approval, they could, they could make that happen. Uh, but um, they've been surprisingly quiet on that front, I think. Well, I don't think it's super surprising. They don't want any responsibility one way or another. Well, they don't want to be told yeah. that they're yeah. They don't they don't want to be told that they're being easy on terrorism, so they're not giving these AUMFs. But they also don't want to be told that they are allowing us to go to war with every other country. It's it's a really fine line and very hard to uh, justify to your um, constituents. Like you said, that's why the constituents should write their Congress people. It's a right. it is an issue which needs to be defined. But I don't think we have Congress people that are really up to it, and I don't think we have constituents as of right now that are also up to it. They're not up to it, and I don't think that we honestly know what we want. And that's the problem, is that some of us are saying, well, you know, we we want to stop the use of chemical weapons. Oh, oh, but but we don't want to actually, like, you know, get involved in the Middle East again. So we have to do something, but we don't want to do a whole lot, and so... The constituency itself doesn't really understand what they want, and so 
how can that be properly translated to to our Congress people? No, you're right, and it's I I, I think the only. I, Really, the only way to get back to it is going to a, the black box, which was the policy planning staff during the Eisenhower administration, where you had George Kennan running the um, policy planning staff, putting out memos for the which became the NSC, which nobody ever got to see. They were classified like 20 or unclassified 20, 30 years afterwards. But no one in the public gets to see those because once you define the national interest, people will push up to the borders of that national interest. And so once you define what you actually want in the world, people will push right up to where you want. And it's it's a really re- – domestically, we need to define it. Internationally, we need to keep it blurry. And so where's the, where's the line? Right. Yeah. And I mean, at a certain point, I kind of wish that we were back in those days where every little thing that we we're doing around the world wasn't scrutinized where there was some measure of secrecy in this decision-making and in the actual actions that we take. Um, I think that, I mean, a nation can't really function in a foreign policy diplomatic sense if every single thing that they're doing is out there in the open and people are responding to it and pushing back against it in real time. And that's it for this episode of the Orientalist Express podcast. I'd like to thank our guests Stephen, Matthew, and Grant for their insight and analysis, as well as our listeners and readers of the blog. Be sure to check out our website at orientalistexpress.com, like and share on our Facebook group, or tweet us at orientalistexp. Our podcast is now available on Stitcher and iTunes, or you can subscribe to our RSS feed, which is hosted by Squarespace. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.